you're listening to the Tales and Tunes podcast. This week's episode comes to you on location from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I was back at my home state to throw the fifth anniversary show of the Mission Beat series in Iowa City, and this week's guest was one of the performers on that bill. Founder and operator of Solar Cathedral Productions, Matt Rissey. Before we drop a bunch of Iowa knowledge on you, let's check out BC Nami's number one track pick of the week. This week's track was actually my opening track from my set at this year's Mission Beat. The track is entitled Chloroformed by Pleasurecraft and JC Onvedic. The remix is by Paul Erson. You can find the release on the label Off Recordings. Here we go.
Welcome, guys, to this episode 9 of the Tales and Tunes podcast. This week's episode is coming at you from back at my home stomping ground in Iowa as I'm back in town to throw uh, the fifth anniversary of the Mission Beat series, which is the official underground electronic dance music showcase of Iowa City's 10 year running Mission Creek Festival. And this week's guest was one of the performances at Mission Beat this last Thursday. He has been DJing and throwing shows here in Iowa for over 15 years and has been one of the m- biggest contributors to the electronic scene here in Iowa. As the founder and operator of so- Solar Cathedral Productions, and this year he celebrates its 15th year since its conception, a longtime friend and a big inspiration, Mr. Matt Rissy. <laughs> Rissy, how you doing, buddy? I'm good, man. Um, re- respectfully humbled. I appreciate that little intro. Yeah, <laughs> awesome to get uh, another Iowan on here, man. Yeah. It's kind of kind of my favorite. <laughs> cool. But uh, yeah, just I was just kind of think back the first time we met, man. Like, uh, I got into the scene. I think you might have played at the first party I went to, but I don't think I remember you playing because the only person I rem- remember playing was it was a New Year's show at. Emerald City in, in Cedar Rapids. It was a New Year's show. I think it was the two, 2006 okay. New Year's. It was Hot Mix 06. Hot Mix 06. That's the party that Coleman and I played. Yep, on. yep. Because yeah. I, I remember going there and like Coleman was playing and I just remember seeing his energy and what he was doing to the crowd. I was like, this is for me. <laughs> like, yeah. I think I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool that that might have been your first show just because first impressions are pretty important mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I think Coleman and I, when we get together, are kind of notorious for setting up sound systems that are, like, beyond necessary. Mm-hmm. And we do that for a reason, you know what I mean? I think that when you just blow people's heads off, that they're just <laughs> like, this shit is bananas, right? Absolutely. So it's cool that that was your first show. There yeah, was- that was the first show. And uh, so when I got into the scene in Iowa, it was it was very, like, it was at the moment when, like, Psytrance was starting to just, like, take off, and, like, the Mind Outside guys were throwing crazy shows and whatnot, and my first three-day festival was a Psytrance party, even though, like, I was too young in electronic years to understand what I was hearing the to even tell you. Yeah, yeah. I just knew it was amazing, a party and, and music, and, yeah, like, that, that kind of vibe, and, uh, I, I didn't, don't think I met you, actually. I mean, I knew of you, and especially coming from that Psytrance background, the opinions of you weren't the greatest, you know, like uh, from, from a lot of the people I talked to felt like you were kind of an asshole. And I, <laughs> and I, you know, I was just like, well, I've never met him. I, mean, I don't really know how to judge the guy. And and uh, I remember uh, my first year in Detroit was 2008. And I, I know I can't remember like when we like first exchanged words. But I remember on day two, like we had been hanging out for the night before and, and going to the parties and having a good time. And you put your arm around me and you're like, Ben, I fucking like you. You, <laughs> you radiate good vibes. And it was just like to have, to hear like all this like build up to who you were and to have you That's put funny. your arm around me and say that to me. It was I was like, I don't think he's a bad fucking guy at all. You dude, know, you it's, know? Uh, it's 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 fun. God, you really came out of left field with with that. Here right <laughs> at the beginning of the, it's funny because I've I've like purposely tried to change my public persona as a result a lot of that was internet based too as a result of because yeah all people that don't banter. interact with you yes. and i mean when you're on the internet you know you know how the internet and you know goes. i cut my teeth on the internet those days and i learned internet etiquette like you know when you when you first start getting into because i didn't do like the chat room thing on aol or whatever i wasn't one of those guys but like 
I'd say early 2000s was when I really started like creating profiles on chat forums and things of that nature. And I'm thinking back to like the Ubersonic days. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and this is when I'm like 19, 20, 21. And I mean, you know, I got I had a foul mouth on me and a, and a hot head attitude. And I wasn't out to hurt nobody by any means, but I'm very opinionated. And I was real quick to, you know, spout my opinions. And when somebody said something that I would disagree with, you know, when you're when you're behind that keyboard and that and that you know monitor or what have you it's really easy to make yourself out to be a huge jerk because you really just kind of unleash mm-hmm. and there's no you tact. have a way with words too I and there's no there's no that. tact there you know what i mean and and uh man it's funny because all of that stuff is still on the internet if you want to dig you can find it and it's like you know being a 34 year old married father of a daughter now i'm a completely different you know, person. And, uh, half of the reason that I am who I am now is because I've gotten a chance to go back through those files and look over, you know, and kind of read that from a, from a different point of view, kind of read it as a spectator and think, wow, I know what you were trying to say, Matt, but man, you're coming (laughs) off like a prick, you know? And it's because of that experience though. I mean, I wouldn't take any of that back because it's because of that experience that I've learned how to respectfully, speak my opinions towards people without being condescending or offensive and i mean I, i've grown a lot i mean it was a learning experience for me so mm-hmm. um it's 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 cool that a lot of that shit is behind me now because the way the whole techno scene works is i feel like you get these two-year cycles of people that are into it and you know you'll have a few heads that kind of stick around but there's those trendsters that are just there for the hot party of the moment and now that we're like six cycles past those days, mm-hmm. nobody re- really, aside from like you and maybe like <laughs> 10 people, there's really nobody that remembers the jerk Matt Rissy. So mm-hmm. it's it's awesome to have that way behind me. You yeah. know what I mean? Because yeah. now I feel like I've really come into my own and, uh, you know, it's, it's very rare that I offend someone these days. At least I feel like I do. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody will reply to this and say... <laughs> Bullshit, buddy. <laughs> but anyway, so enough of that. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and speaking of, you know, like uh, how far you've come now, yeah, how, how's, uh, how's 2015 been so far? It's been a wild year, man. Um, it's my 15-year anniversary, uh, throwing parties under Solar Cathedral, which is cool. So I've made big plans. I've been working on a lot of things that I plan on bringing out this year. Um, I mean, we're, we're bringing Pan Pot for my 15-year anniversary from Berlin. Uh, here in May, and that's kind of a big deal. Uh, I've been working on this booking for almost a year now. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been, uh, well, I'm doing a stage actually at 515 Live this year. We'll do a SC15 stage, which will be cool. Both days? Uh, No, no, no. So the Equilibrium guys are doing Friday night, and I'll be doing uh, Saturday night. Okay. Uh, So we're doing like a little feature, an SC15 feature, and I'm going to bring Mike G down from Minneapolis. Oh, yes. (laughs) One of my favorite Minneapolis DJs. Absolutely. Have him headline the stage, but... I just plan on doing everything a little bit more, uh, you know, explosive this year with it being the the anniversary. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the big uh, motivating factors for that was, um, you know, Coleman, before he had moved out west, had challenged me. He said, you know, I, I dare you to throw a party this year that's not in a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But we've been doing these parties at, at these strip clubs in town because they're the only venues in town that let us go all night. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I've gotten kind of lazy you know they've got these huge lighting systems and all we have to do is roll in sound set up i mean set up and tear down are an hour each mm-hmm. and uh the parties just blow up i mean we hit capacity every time we make money 
the energy is off the wall because there's like you know no regard in that place and um you know so coleman's like challenging me to do a party that's not in a strip club and i think that's what really motivated me to pull pull shit together to do this pan pot event but yeah on top of that i had my first uh my first child i had my daughter was born in june mm-hmm. um so my wife and i have the baby at home and um, I've also had my busiest year uh, in the office at work during my day job. So I sell search engine marketing and optimization. So life's just been nuts. Um, on top of that, my mom is kind of going through some health stuff and, um, you know, working with my mom in the hospital and my dad. And um, it's it's crazy. I'm, I'm wearing like 100 hats. But mm-hmm. it's weird. I feel like I progress better in these type of situations. It's like if I don't have 100 things to juggle, um, you know, I feel lost. So, mm-hmm. You know, the, the more curveballs that life can throw at me, the, the, the better I feel like I'm going to be off. So it's good. 2015 has been awesome so far, and I plan on it getting even crazier. Hell yeah, man. You're, you're a busy fucking person, and it, it's motivating for, for others. That's that's for damn sure. It's awesome. Yeah, so how, how is, I mean, you're talking about having your kid. How is how has being a dad changed your life? I mean. it's It's crazy, man. It really is. It's like. I don't sleep anymore. Anxiety, you know, it's like <laughs> I've never I've never loved someone so much that it scares me and I almost want to cry about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like when I when I put my daughter's name is Drew, when I put Drew down for for bed at night at 8:30, you know, we, we shoot for 8:30, put her in the crib and uh watch her fall asleep. I mean, I just think to myself, I love this girl so much, but then my mind, you know, me being the the progressive thinker or the planner that I am, my mind goes to all right, well, is she going to be well off? Is she going to have money for college? Is she going to be healthy? Is she going to uh, are dirt bags at the, on the schoolyard going to try to touch her? Like, you know, I'm thinking of, <laughs> my mind is just going a million different directions, thinking about all the things that I want to protect her from. And it like, I borderline, you know, push myself to an anxiety attack a few times a week. <laughs> but uh, aside from me being a worry war, it's, it's been fucking amazing, mm-hmm. man. She's beautiful. And, uh, I think those are just signs of being a really good father. Yeah, man. She's, <laughs> She, uh, you know, it's, it's not about me anymore, you mm-hmm. know, and it, it always has been. And mm-hmm. now when it's not about you anymore, you really kind of change your, your point of view on, you know, virtually everything, man. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything that I, you know, apply myself to is with regard to her in the back of my mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, even when I'm putting on music events, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, so, yeah, it's been well, crazy. Well, yeah, along that too, like how, how do you feel it's inspired your DJing or, or your involvement with throwing events or you know that's a good question it it, i don't know it's definitely inspiring when i'm on stage expressing myself you know i've done some people might notice this they might not i'm not sure but when i dj live um, i usually bring a photo of my wife and a photo of my daughter and i I tape them to the dj booth oh cool right next to the mixer which is kind of cheesy right but um you know, sometimes I'll post a, a picture of uh, my buddy Eli there as well. Eli Osby is a friend of mine that we lost here um, a little over a year ago. And uh, I just try to put something on the table that will spark emotion because it helps me kind of disconnect. I feel like really the best comes out of me when I'm not worried about whether or not people are responding to the music I'm playing. The best comes out of me when I kind of cut ties with the audience and really try to lose myself. And sometimes when I see things that kind of get my heart pumping, it really kind of pushes me into that that zone or whatever so from a music standpoint like DJing live my daughter has has brought a lot of warmth to that I'd say just which is kind of weird right but (laughs) I mean it really has I think about that a lot but from a 
you know, preparing for gigs angle, it really makes it tough because <laughs> when I'm home, I mean, the last thing I want to do is leave my daughter upstairs with my wife and get down in the studio and work. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So when I'm prepping for gigs, you know, I used to, you know, put a lot of time into getting tracks ready and, and hunting for tracks and dicing up tracks in the studio, um, you know, until game day or whatever. And now that I've got a daughter upstairs, that shit just doesn't happen. And it's like, <laughs> I try to do all my track hunting while I'm on the clock at work during the day, actually, <laughs> and building crates and things of that nature. But I, I really don't get to grid and tracks and prepping tracks usually until a few hours before I leave for the gig. Mm-hmm. So there's no more practice going on in the studio when it comes to DJing. So having a daughter upstairs makes that a little bit tougher. But thankfully, I think that my DJing is to the point where I don't necessarily need to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's just knowing your tracks is what's important. And, uh, you know, I can DJ them just fine. But so what I try to do is make sure I throw all my tracks on a jump drive and I plug them into the car. So anytime I'm driving anywhere, I'm, I'm basically prepping yeah. myself for, for gigs by studying <laughs> tracks, you know, in the car or whatever. But so I don't know. I guess it's, it's fueled up my, uh, my time management. Having the kid at home has, has, you know, provided me with the opportunity to be more disciplined in that department. Mm-hmm. How is your sleeping compared to before? It's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> There, I mean, I was telling you today, so last night I, you know, I played for you guys at Mission Creek Thursday night, mm-hmm. and I've got to work in the morning, so uh, thankfully I had a couple hours that I, I rolled in a little bit late on Friday, but you know, I didn't get home till f- from Iowa City till about four, and I had to get up and go to work, and I got off from work, and I was dead tired, and we put the daughter down at 8.30, and I got in bed, and for some fucking reason I couldn't fall asleep until 4 a.m., and again, it's just my mind is constantly cranking, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, I'm... I'm thinking about my daughter. I'm thinking about the pan pot party. I'm thinking about sound, lights, picking these guys up from the from the airport. I'm thinking about how the flow is going to go when it comes time to like count money and try to get people to the after party. It's like these are the things that I mean. I almost feel like I can't wait for this show to be over so that I can take a fucking nap. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, th- thankfully Detroit slowly follows that because that's gonna yeah, be, right. <laughs> so that's going to be a great release. You know, I should probably buy some insurance for that weekend because it's like. It's one week after, you know, potentially the biggest show of my life that I've put on. And once that shit is behind me, I'm going to be ready to unwind, man. <laughs> and I'm not going to have any responsibilities for four days. Some of the best DJs on the planet mm-hmm. are going to be within walking distance of my hotel room. <coughs> so um, I'm, I'm probably going to be kind of a mess in Detroit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it calls for it. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, let, let's go into a little more detail about the this 15th anniversary of Solar Cathedral I have coming up. So... Uh, yeah, how did how did you come to the conclusion of Pan Potter? Were there other people on deck, or was this yeah. been a long pursuit? Um, I've been Pot? thinking, you know, once I thought to myself that I want to do it big for the anniversary, you know, I looked at the calendar, it ended up being 15 years. You know, I actually didn't know. I had actually reached out to Pan Pot before I realized that 2015 was our 15th year. And the date I was looking at was May 15th, so 5-15-15. 15, 15. <laughs> 15 was just like this... this aura floating in the sky like "Ah," right yeah (laughs) so i look at a calendar and i look back at my gig list i've i've actually logged all of my gigs on this word document or whatever and the first show that i threw was called conflicting elements and it was in 2000 so i'm like wow it's my 15th anniversary this date that we're looking for is the 15th in 2015 it just makes sense sc15 right like Mm -hmm. this is this is going to be my 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 marketing agenda right so (laughs) anyways but i've 
I've been wanting to bring a headliner. You know, over the course of the last few years, we've gotten to the point where I get a decent turnout, usually between 500 to 1,000 people for our all-night events, whether we do a local lineup or not. And, you know, uh, being a family man, I've kind of been in that, that mode where I'd rather put that money in my pocket rather than spend it on the headliner, especially if we're going to get the same turnout. Mm-hmm. But I figured for my anniversary, I wanted to do something different and, you know, maybe risk losing a little bit of money, a little bit of money, risk, uh, you know, not breaking even or what have you, but having a, a special event on the horizon. So I was looking at a few different guys. You know, I've been a huge fan of uh, Pan Pot for a long time, and I've actually never seen him play, which is wild. I've never booked a headliner that I've never seen before. <laughs> um, so that's kind of cool. But I had a few different people in mind, and to be honest, it was very hard to get uh, any agencies to hit me back. Because I'm a promoter, you know, reaching out from Iowa, and people are like, "What the fuck is in Iowa that we want?" You know, like, are we going to send our rock star to Iowa? And uh, Panpot honestly was the only agency that reached back to me. I reached out to Maceoplex, no love back. I reached out to Claude Von Stroke, which, you know, uh, we have a good friend, uh, Omira from uh, Iowa City, who now is a professor out in Phoenix. She mm-hmm. went to college with Barkley. And I remember a long time ago, she had asked if Coleman and I wanted to bring him out. She said he would come for like 500 bucks and a plane ticket or something. Oh, shit. my God. And we were like, Claude Von who? You know, <laughs> a long time ago. And now, of course, he's like this gigantic star, you know. And Oh, yeah. He's probably super expensive. But I would just want to do something big, and I kind of made a top five list. Um, and Panpot were the only guys that, that hollered back. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let's do it, you know, and. What sucks about it is it's two guys, so you have to deal with two plane tickets, two hotel rooms. I mean, the cost is exponentially more. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, man, I thought, what better way? I mean, these guys right now are at the top of the game, you know, so mm-hmm. be pretty special for Iowa. And then, you know, I look into their plans for this quarter of the year or whatever, and in regards to their world tour, they're only playing Montreal, Toronto, New York, in Iowa on the North American leg of their world tour. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it's very special for Iowa, and I, I hope that a lot of people realize that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that we'll have people driving from Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Louis to see these guys because it's going to be kind of a rare thing. Absolutely, man. So I'm really stoked on it. Yeah, it's, it's cool as fuck. How's, uh, well, yeah, and we, we've talked about this like before the podcast a little bit, but what, what have the struggles been with trying to deal with, you know, being in Iowa throwing this all-night event, like wanting to go big. Oh, and... Where do I start, man? It's like <laughs> this year's been really wild. Like, So we did, let's see, Halloween is always like the biggest night of the year for us, and Coleman and I kind of started with the Monster Series, which is very, uh, I mean, that was like the epic series. It got a lot of people that are listening to techno now into techno, right? A lot of people are like, that was my first party, and they usually spout off one of the monster parties, right? Mm-hmm. So those parties were super crazy, and Halloween's been our thing. You know, that's when we can break a 1,000 people, right, is mm-hmm. Halloween usually. Um, so we had done Halloween here, uh, Bloodlust, out uh, at the Lumberyard, um, which is a venue where we can go all night. And we had Hyperactive, DJ Hyperactive Headline and Leon J from Minneapolis. Got about a 1,000 people. And unfortunately, that night we got a ton of noise complaints. And uh, the Cedar Rapids Police Department was all, you know, down our throats about that. And we ended up going all night, but... I booked New Year's at that venue, and we posted that uh, event information online, and the CRPD was all over it. They actually contacted the venue and said, hey, you know, if you're doing this again, you know, if this is the same thing that was going on in Halloween, 
you know, for New Year's, we're basically going to shut you down. They're like, we, Jesus. it's too loud. We get too many complaints. Our phone's blowing up all night, yada, yada, yada. You don't have a dance permit. They started pulling all of these ordinance cards on us, which they've never done before. And so I figured, all right, screw it. We'll move it. We'll move the party to a different venue. So we moved to Hawkeye Downs, which is actually where we're having Pampot. And I realized then that somebody from either CRPD or city council kind of had it out for us because the Hawkeye Downs venue manager, once I posted that venue change, contacted me and said, hey, I've got city council and CRPD calling me and telling me not to work with you. Matt Rissy throws raves and do not work with him, right? So thankfully, the guy that runs Hawkeye Downs is kind of a, a family friend, and he's on my team about this, you know? So we, we, we kind of went back and forth here. We ended up actually moving the venue again for New Year's to another space, Woody's, where we could go till 5 a.m. But, you know, it's almost like the techno movement in Cedar Rapids has gotten pretty big now, and, and the CRPD and city council are completely aware of what we've got going on. They're keeping mm-hmm. an eye on our event pages. And um, so I've been kind of going back and forth with these guys as they, you know, follow me from venue to venue, telling people not to work with me. And what really sucks is that, you know, of course, they have this negative connotation with raves, mm-hmm. you know, drugs, raves, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they don't realize how awesome these shows are. I mean, you know, I'm telling them, okay, cool, you know all this stuff about raves. Have you ever been to one? Because mm-hmm. they probably haven't, you know. <laughs> and why don't you come to one of mine? Because, you know, we, we've got a million-dollar insurance policy, you know, for, for New Year's and for the Pampot Show. You know, we've got CRPD there. We've got security. We've got a medic. You know, we've got, I mean, we, we've run through all of the red tape that's necessary to make sure that this event is as legit and safe as possible. Mm-hmm. And you're making it extremely hard for us to get the show off the ground. Now, I could throw a party in a warehouse and not have any of those things, rent a warehouse, don't hire CRPD, don't have a medic on site, no security, like we've done it many yeah. times over the course of the last 15 years, which would be definitely a place that I don't want my 18-year-old daughter partying. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I can do it in that manner and not have any sweat from the cops. And it's like, I'm trying to do a safe and fun event where I'm working with the authorities and you're making it as tough as possible for me to accomplish that. It's almost like they're going to push me back to the underground, mm-hmm. which is what I'm trying to get out of. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's been a struggle, man. It's like over the years, you know, to get a venue. I don't want to say that we have to be dishonest with venue owners that are leasing us spaces, but we can't exactly tell them that we're throwing a techno party that's going to go till the sun comes up. You know, mm-hmm. we try to find venues where they give us the keys and we can lease the space for a week or a month or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we can get in there and set up sound and lights and do our show and have security and make sure that it's safe and it goes off without, you know, noise complaints or any issues with the police. And, I mean, it's always just been like a renegade. And I'm, I'm trying to get away from that. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm a 34-year-old man with a wife and kid at home. It's like I don't want to be throwing parties where there's these huge liabilities or, you know, there's a possibility that somebody yeah. could get hurt. I mean, I'm, I'm done with all of that. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, don't this want is it to the, be risky. The business, the tax business you're in, and you want to function. 100%. <laughs> you know, it's like I have a tax ID number, an LLC, and a freaking accountant. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want this to be some underground renegade. I want it to be a legitimate event. Like, you're looking at these, you know, if you're, you're on the Internet, and you're looking at EDC and Tomorrowland and these huge festivals that are 100% in accordance with the law and they're just pumping out millions of dollars worth of revenue as a result of these parties. And it's like, 
I'm not trying to necessarily get to that point, but I want to throw parties in town where we can get a thousand or two thousand people and not have the police department be upset about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like we want to have a safe place for people to come play. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Uh huh. Moving to Denver was was one of the craziest changes for me. Was there are I can I can almost I mean I can list five venues downtown or near downtown that are warehouse spaces that are there for throwing parties and you have nothing to worry about the owners know what's going on yeah like like for instance there's a place called the fusion factory in denver that uh, i've helped throw shows there and i've played shows there it and you can get that place on a friday night for 750 dollars and that includes the sound <laughs> what is it a good sound system yeah. too? I mean, it, I mean, it's good for what it is. I mean, people bring in in sound, but I mean, for seven hundred fifty dollars, yeah, and wow. it's a burner, it's <laughs> no a burner, burner warehouse, like, and you don't have bullshit to worry about, and you know you're gonna get people because it's a weekend night, yeah, and it's like the closest venue to downtown, like, and people, there's lots of people in Denver who party and want to continue partying, so wow. it's 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 so crazy, just like, no fucking sweat, like, yeah. it's, it's such a huge part of throwing parties out here is the politics and yeah. the and hoops the you jump through and, and the spiels you have to give in order to make the events happen, man. So it's, it it's sucks. so crazy to how, how different <laughs> that is in a, in a major city. But yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel, uh, the response to, uh, the, the party's going to be so far? I mean, for the pan pot. Yeah. Show? Yeah. Um, so far so good. We've got like almost 500 RSVPs online. We usually double that number, mm-hmm. so I'm confident we're going to break a thousand. Um, this is the first year that I've gotten sponsorship uh, from local businesses, and I kind of have a deal worked out with sponsors where, you know, in exchange for their sponsor dollars, they're getting stacks of tickets to have, give out to their employees or friends or family or whatever they want. So, you know, I figure we've got a capacity of somewhere between sixteen hundred and two thousand. Um, you know, if I can get a thousand paying guests through the door. And I give out 400 free tickets to people that probably wouldn't come if they didn't have a free ticket. I can mm-hmm. kind of use their warm bodies to fill up space and maybe expose our music to some new people, mm-hmm. some new open-minded people that don't realize that we're here, you know. Um, so from that aspect, I think it's going to be good. I don't What's know. What's the age limit? We're doing 18 and up. 18 and up. Yeah, and they, they have a liquor license, so we're allowed to uh, you know sell beer. I think they sell beer and wine or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It should be good from a from a production quality standpoint. It'll be the highest bar that I've set for myself. We've got a big flying concert line array and um, sound system that'll be uh, flown from the ceiling, uh, as well as lighting system flown from the ceiling and stage installation. I mean, <laughs> it's going to be my largest production to date. Hell yeah, man! Um, so it should be really cool. I'm very excited. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, kind of change gears here. Uh, two nights ago, uh, this last Thursday, was the fifth anniversary of the Mission Beat parties. I've been throwing, yeah, now for five years. Yeah, five years ago, a very good friend of mine, Sean Akbar, uh, when I was living in Iowa City and, and throwing events, approached me and said, uh, hey, I, I know the main guy who organizes uh, Mission Creek Festival. Uh, Andre and he's looking for someone to do an all-night uh, electronic party because we don't really have anybody with their foot in that door and and he asked me because he knows I go to the events and he's like 
he's he's like without question mentioned me Ben Mielhau to him and so he's like he'd like you to throw start throwing all the uh, the electronic night of, of the underground dance music and uh, I was like fucking sign me up I'm so yeah, fucking down right. so the the first year we did it we were uh, and I'm glad they called you shit yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, the first year we did it it was at uh, the warehouse which was this pretty fucking awesome sketchy venue was that when you had hector close it out or whatever was that a mission creek party i remember the there warehouse. was there was a couple there was okay. it the one you played at the one I you know. played, I played out there was... with eric starrett right yeah i thought that was the you played there with jimmy or jimmy's party yeah okay. yeah conflict. so i was just thinking of that so you you guys had gs sound right yeah jesse sound system and hector played yeah. last i want to say yeah, yeah, he- I think yes. Hector was at that first one, and that because because uh, actually that party, yeah, because we were doing like fire spinning in the venue and yeah. like crazy shit. But uh, <laughs> uh, that year, what's also cool about that first year was Leon Jay's first performance in yes. Iowa. Okay, was so the it was when machine. Leon and Hector played back to back. Yeah, yeah, and it was awesome. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was sick as fuck. Yeah, and uh, so that was the first year, and it, it went off without a hitch, and then. Uh, the second year, well, the warehouse unfortunately closed after that. We were able to get off, I think, a good four or five parties in that venue, and yeah. it sadly came to a conclusion. And then, uh, so the next year, uh, it would have been Mission Beat 2, Andre, the guy who hosts uh, Mission Creek Festival, uh, asked me, or we, we combined forces, and we were like, well, where can we do this party? And uh, I was like, you know, I think we—they've had a couple at the old brick church recently. I think we could—I think we could get our ends in there. So uh, let's let's just get a breakdown of the old brick church before I get into that too. So this is going to be a tangent, but <laughs> so the old brick church has been one of the most legendary all-night event venues for history. electronic music in Iowa and Iowa City. Not to mention, it is one of the oldest and most historical standing. Uh, historical buildings in Iowa City. So, yeah. when were the first parties of that? Well, shit. I mean, I think they were even before my day. Um, mm-hmm. I went to a few parties there in the late '90s, um, where like Uplift had played, and I seen some drum and bass DJs there. Um, the parties that I had been to there before Coleman got a hold of that place, though, weren't that great. Like, there were always some half-assed sound systems, you know, kind of sparsely populated. Mm-hmm. But it was a great venue, right? Yeah. Big brick, old church, um, awesome like, atmosphere in there. Yeah, sound designed for you know cathedral, right? Yep, cathedral yep. sound, huge organ there <laughs> up on the wall. But um, Coleman got his hands on it. Um, man, I was just looking at these flyers. So I want to say in like two thousand, two thousand one, Coleman brought Frankie Bones there, and we got like twelve or thirteen hundred people in this place <laughs> in a church, and it was ridiculous and. God, the mess we had to clean up in the morning there was just unimaginable. We've got Col- pictures of Coleman, like, scooping stuff out of the toilet, like, with two spatulas. Like, piles of flyers and, like, human waste, you know. <laughs> it was such a mess. But, you know, what really blew my mind about it was that they had a, a fucking wedding booked for 9 a.m. Uh, setup time the following day on Sunday morning. So it's like, we just had 1,300 ravers up in here partying until 5 o'clock in the morning. And the place smelled like, like hell. I mean, it smelled so bad. And we had to clean all of that shit. And while we're cleaning that place out and hauling stacks of subs down the stairs, they're like bringing in, you know, tables and linens for this wedding or whatever. So crazy. 
But anyways, yeah, there's been a, a lot of ton of good shows there, you know, via Coleman, as far as I'm concerned. Frankie Bones, he brought John Aquaviva there, which is a huge deal. Mm -hmm. This was back when John Aquaviva and Richie Houghton were beta testing Final Scratch. So they were like the first DJs that were doing the, um, you know, timecode vinyl and laptop mm -hmm. control. Mm -hmm. So he was testing out, you know, Final Scratch on Coleman's sound system, which was awesome. I think he played like a four-hour set. Um, Mike Huckabee. We did Lenny D there. Well, not we. I mean, Coleman is really responsible for all of this stuff. You know, I was just there to dance and, and be the nerdy buddy that helps carry speakers. But um, then after a while, Coleman kind of started slowing down with his production. And I did a couple shows there. We brought Donald Glob there mm -hmm. for Inferno. We did Inferno, I want to say like two there. Well, wait, let's see. We brought Donald Glob for Unfinished Business. It was the second time we brought Donald Glob. And then I did some Halloween parties there. And then I had gotten caught. So the thing about that venue is is that they lease it to you and they give you the keys. Mm -hmm. So they don't really know what you're doing in there. I mean, they think that the music's going to be done at midnight. They also expect you to use the PA system that's built in. You know, I remember one time we were setting up there and we had this huge wall of sound and the owner came in. And he's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> we had like, you know, like a 40-foot wall of subs or whatever. <laughs> and he's like... The PA system that we have here has been so loud sometimes that we tell these people to turn it down. And they had, like, two, you know, like, PA-15s, like, hanging from the corners of one side of it. And I'm like, I don't think you know what we're going for here, you know. But he thought we were bonkers, and, and he left or whatever. And anyways, they think that you close down at 2 while they give you the keys, and they don't come back to check on the space until the following day. So what happens is we wait till the owners leave, we throw a party until 5 or 6 in the morning, we clean up by 9, and we scurry out of there. It's kind of like a ninja operation. And we'd gotten away with it for like 10 shows. Mm -hmm. We had finally gotten caught up by an owner when I was there. Um, and, you know, we thought that was the end of the old brick. And then it went stale for a few years. And then all of a sudden it popped back under Mission Beat. Mm -hmm. And they w had changed hands in regards to ownership. Mm -hmm. So the old owner was no longer there, which is why you guys were able to mm -hmm. use him for Mission Beat. Yeah. But that owner caught wind of you guys going past midnight at like four in the morning and i remember being in the back room at i don't think Beat. he did though i think he just walked in because what just to rewind a little bit so this was this is what happened so me and andre there hadn't been a party at the old brick in in a couple in like yeah several years a few and, years yeah. yeah yeah and i'm like this is really the only option we have and going into it i was like i'm gonna i'm gonna bring coleman in on this because well one i'd love to throw a show with him and two, he's had experience with this venue, you know, and I just want to be absolutely prepared to the max going in and asking for this. Yeah. So the Andre, the guy who runs Mission Creek Festival and me set a meeting time to go in them and talk to him. And we sat down with them and they were like, you know, we're Mission Creek. We've been doing this in Iowa City for seven years. It's the we want the community involved as mu as much as possible. And your venue would be a blessing for us to have this here, you know, like to, to have it in a historical building. And the guy was, was beyond excited about it. He's like, Oh, that's just so great. We're, we love getting involved with the community and this and that. And like, he's, he's just like excited about it. And we're like, Oh, this is going really well. And then he's like, okay. So he pulls out his little like chart of like what it costs to rent it. And he's like, usually for a Saturday night for, you know, you guys are going to need time to set up and tear down, blah, blah, blah. He's like, we, we we usually do it for about a thousand. He's like, but you guys do like sponsorships, right? Like if we got some some advertisement in your in your programs or you know, on your on your posters. Yeah. He's like, 
we, we could cut a deal, right? And we're like, oh, absolutely. He's like, how about we do this? We give you the venue for $250. <laughs> and then we get at least like at least half a page of advertisement. And, and we're like, absolutely, done. man. Yeah, we're done. <laughs> and he's like, all right. Well, like, and he, we, we made up these contracts. And no, not it was never brought up. Nor did he even ask when it was over. Yeah. Like, I don't know when. Thankfully. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully. (laughs) And we're like, we just got this venue for $750 cheaper to get away with murder. (laughs) And he, like, when we were leaving, he's like, oh, it's great you're having the dance party here. And he was, like, dancing in his office. (laughs) Like, he was so excited. This, like, 60-year-old bearded, like, (laughs) big-bellied guy. We're like, oh, my God, that could have not have gotten better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so comes the night and uh that first year was actually um who was on the lineup yeah we had it's it someone from denver coleman coleman played and uh complicit that was actually their the first, first time first iowa. iowa performance for complicit we had uh david last and rob fitzgerald from colorado which right. was which is interesting too because they they were involved with the community music festival out in Boulder and uh, that we did a artist swap with them right. and then me and Jimmy uh, my best friend Jimmy Moksha went out there and played for that right. and that was kind of the segue to moving to Colorado because once I went out there and played that festival and met everybody involved <laughs> I with love that this place I was just like <laughs> yeah I'm I'm fucking moving here yeah and uh, we also had T J Hood and Jordan Clausen's first time ever playing out so. Yeah, the party was, uh, in my opinion, it was the favorite party I've ever thrown. Like just the energy and, it was an and awesome show, doing it sure. with Coleman in that in that venue was it was is so spectacularly like fulfilling. And uh, so I played last, and it was uh, we were we were just approaching six, and I was literally playing my last track, this Joris Bourne sexy ass morning track, and I took my headphones off, and I'm like, oh, this is. You know, all right, party's about to end, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then Rissy comes running up to me behind the booth, like, while this last track is just, like, halfway through. And he's like, uh, dude, you might want to turn it down or uh, actually just shut it off. I'm like, what what, what do you mean? You're like, dude, the owner is here, or the guy that runs the place, and he is fucking pissed. Yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah, what, or how did you, how did that happen? I'm in the back room, and that's where they're, uh, the the uh, electric boxes for the building, like the power panel or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we, we with that size of sound system, you can't just plug it into the wall. So we have our uh, sound engineer actually, you know, go directly into the power box. And, I mean, it kind of looks like a fire hazard. It looks like it's not safe. You definitely don't want to put your hands on any of that shit, right? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, technically you have to have an electrical engineer get in here and do this kind of wiring. And this guy comes stomping in the back door. I mean, what is this? It's like five in the morning. Yeah, it's like five or six in the it's morning. It's like five, six in the morning. We've got a fifty thousand watt sound. Sunday system morning, pounding away. The sun's coming up. There's people in there just raging. Beer cans everywhere. And, and we the, also told them that it was an alcohol-free event. Yeah, like, we weren't selling alcohol, but like we weren't. You know, people like, end up bringing any, their own. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. And there were beer cans everywhere. Yeah. So this dude comes blazing in, like kicking ravers out of his way, and he goes, "Where are those Mission Creek fuckers?" <laughs> And I was like, what? And he looked like he had just rolled out of bed. Like, his hair was all messed up. And I think maybe, like, some noise complaints had happened. And they ended up contacting him and letting him know that his church was raging, right? So he just comes storming in the back. And 
My God, he was so pissed. He was like, I heard he was wasted though, because I never. Yeah, he was drunk. He was definitely drunk. That's the crazy thing. And his mouth was like foaming. And I had run up to tell you to turn it off. And Coleman was like, I'm going to deal with this guy. Just tell Ben to leave. Yeah. Like, tell Ben to disappear. You need to get the fuck out of here. Right. And (laughs) at that point, I'd run back, and this dude yanked the power cords right out of the fucking wall. Like, he just grabbed the cords and yanked them. And there was this huge spark. And, like, I mean, he could have killed somebody. You know what I mean? If somebody was there and had touched any of that, right. I mean, he could have hurt himself or hurt somebody. And so he was snapping. Like, he was trying to beat people up and shit. We call the cops. They came and arrested his ass. Do you remember that? (laughs) He went to jail. The venue owner went to jail, and we got to clean up and get out of there before he got out. What are the fucking chances, dude? Oh, my God. God, I thought he was going to hurt somebody, though, man. Well, yeah, and the the crazy thing, too, was that when he pulled those plugs, he was pulling the plug. We had uh, Mass Static, the guy who's doing... Did it, like, did it fry his shit or whatever? Well, he was terrified because he didn't own that stuff. It was like $30,000 worth of lighting equipment. And like when the, when he pulled those and he saw them off, he almost got into a fight with him. Because he's like, if this shit's blown, like my fucking ass owes $30,000. Like, so there was almost like this dude like fighting oh this dude. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I want to say that's – it might have been Max who had called the police. It could be mistaken. It probably about that. was just because, yeah, like, because if she, he wanted to cover his ass, yeah, make, that completely makes sense. Yeah, and the cops came and they ended up arresting the venue owner. And took him <laughs> out of there. What are the fuck? The greatest chances? part too was like when after you told me and I was turning it down and Coleman came up and he told me the sitch. He's like, they're, they're he's seriously asking for Andre and Ben. He's like, you need to leave because yeah. he might fight you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, dude, this is so fucked up because this was. This is literally the last track. Like, I was about to fade <laughs> you out. You made it through your set, And he though. goes, he goes, <laughs> that's what you call a textbook underground rave, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I fucking felt it, man. It was. That sound system sounded so good in there. That was the first time we had, I want to say, Matt's newer rig in there. You know, full yeah. wall in there. And God, Coleman played so good that night, too. And complic- it was just, it was good. All yeah, it was it good was- from, like, you know. Right when the door opened until yeah. right when the maniac showed up. <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely, man. And, yeah, that's that's what's really cool, man, uh, about this last one is, like, I mean, now in Iowa City, there really is no fucking place to do an all-night party. Like, it's... There isn't. I mean, there might be, but nobody's take you know put forth the effort mm-hmm. to pound the pavement and find a place. Yeah, yeah. I guarantee you there's an empty warehouse somewhere where a guy is paying a mortgage... And would love to get a thousand bucks to let some kids party in his space for two days. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But who's going to put forth the initiative to make it exactly. happen? Exactly. You know and I mean, mean, I come back to do this every year, and I don't, I don't have time to. Be yeah, like, you don't live here. That makes yeah, it really hard. Yeah to, yeah, to make something like that happen. So you moved it to the bars. Yeah. So we we've taken residency at Yacht Club, and it's. I mean, Yacht Club's always good, and and this last party was was just super fucking awesome, man. We had. Uh, the lineup was Eric Starrett from He Lives in Denver, uh, was on the podcast a few episodes ago, uh, hadn't played in Iowa in two and a half years, brought Matt out for his first uh, mission beat, which was great, and then uh, one of uh, my favorite local up-and-comers, Colin, opened, and, uh, or Colin Giant Child. And uh, <coughs> and you played. Don't, yeah, of course. Don't leave yourself I, out. I close out the last 45. I know this is your or... podcast, but you fucking jammed it, too. <laughs> The last 45, I always close out, and uh, 
Yeah, it was, dude. The vibe was. Oh man, it just reminded me of what it, <coughs> what a what fucking Iowa parties are about and our yeah, scene dude, is I can't believe been. that that happened on a Thursday like it did. Yeah, and it we was br- just crazy. We brought in that extra sound and it just oh it was. I think that's an element again. You know, it's like don't cut corners on sound systems, man. It's like the sound in there is decent, mm-hmm. but you tripled the bass basically. You tripled mm-hmm. their their bass bin count. And honestly, that just added to the atmosphere. It's like people are sucked into that. You know what I mean? And a lot of promoters cut corners on that, but it's such a vital element. It's like yeah, you're doing a party, you know, to to push music that is 100% about bass. Mm-hmm. You better make sure you have a bunch of bass bins in the space. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So when you guys did that sound edition, that's what made me excited to play was mm-hmm. that. You know? Yeah, it, it definitely... Uh, Increase the vibe. <coughs> Excuse me. But yeah, it was it was so cool. There was so many people I haven't seen in so long that came out for the woodwork for it, and like, I like I almost felt at points like, on on the floor, I was like, this this just feels like it's going all night. Like yeah, it, it felt like that. Like, and yeah, it was it's super fun to always come back and do this every year. And after the show, uh, Andre, it was actually. He hasn't been able to make it out for a single one yet because he's so fucking busy with his festival. I mean, it's Thursday to Sunday. He's yeah. got, you know, I can't even imagine the shit that that dude goes through. Like, yeah. that's, I mean, that's his life. Three sixty five is is Mission Mission Creek Festival, and uh, he he actually got to come down and he's like, I came down there and he's like, that fucking sound. He's like, I poached up in a corner and just fucking <laughs> relaxed. And he's like, I, I loved it. And he's like. You, you, he's like you are uh, this is always going on from now until Mission Creek ends if it ever does nice. and he's like so this will be a continuation and it's 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 super exciting and cool. uh, yeah awesome to finally have you a part of it too yeah man, man I was stoked to play it was definitely a tons of fun mm-hmm. it was really uh, an ode to uh, to Iowa the people who have been around for you know as long as I have at least yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was totally. a, a super cool, like, throwback kind of environment and whatnot. So that's a little history behind Mission Beat and, you know, the how it's progressed over the past five years and some of the highlights. But uh, let's get into the history of Matt Rissey. Um, so you were born and raised in Iowa, right? No. 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 I was actually born in Tucson, Arizona. Okay. So I moved here in 1996 when I was uh, about to be a junior in high school. So um, I grew up in Tucson, um, kind of in a bad part of town. Um, We, uh, let's see, we were there until I was about 10. We moved to a better part of town, and I was there until I was 15, 16, and then we moved here to Iowa. My, my, we have family here, and... uh, we wanted to get away from some bad stuff in Tucson, so my dad up and moved our family here. I have a brother who's handicapped. He has a learning disability, and he's also deaf. And uh, my uncle lives here in Iowa, has a, a big factory, highway equipment company. Mm. And he offered my dad and my brother um, career opportunity at his factory. So we up and moved to Iowa in 1996. That's cool, man. Keeping it in the family and whatnot. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah, so I mean, in Tucson, I mean, if you're growing up, what was, what kind of things were you into growing up? Like sports or yeah, hobbies, standard kid stuff. So I uh, I played soccer first grade through fourth grade. I played football sixth grade or fifth grade through eighth grade. 
Um, I've always been a fan of music, though. My dad always had a monster stereo system in our living room, and I loved to play with it. Um, you know, he had CD players and records players and tape decks. And I mean, I, I started having my parents buy me tapes when I was in first grade. Um, like the whole uh, Electric Boogaloo series, a lot of the Planet Rock shit. And like, I mean, I had Vanilla Ice tapes. I had, you know, this was kind of when MTV was blowing up. And all summer, when my mom and dad were at work, my brother, who's deaf, didn't want anything to do with the TV. So I was in charge of the TV, and I would just watch MTV pretty much for eight hours a day all summer long <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, which you probably shouldn't be doing if you're only in first grade, but... Um, so I liked everything, man. I liked like Guns N' Roses. I was listening. I mean, I had Guns N' Roses tapes. I had Vanilla Ice tapes. I had Belle Biv DeVoe. Um, you know, we had some babysitters that were watching us, and I used to ride in their boyfriend's cars and pick up on the music that they were playing. I mean, I was I was privy to like Two Live Crew before I was in third or fourth grade, <laughs> which is crazy bad music for a kid to hear. <laughs> But what really caught me about it was uh, my Uncle Mike had a, a little car, a little Datsun hatchback, and he had subs in the back of it. And uh, that's why he listened to 2 Live Crew was for the, the that Miami bass, that 808 bass. And he used to put us in this back seat of his car and drive us around bumping those subs. And that shit just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God, this bass is fucking awesome, right? And <laughs> I didn't realize down, you know, down the road, uh, until down the road, that that's why I had liked hip-hop growing up was not necessarily – for the the lyricism or the vocals or the rapping that's on hip-hop but what i liked about hip-hop was the sub bass that was in the programming um i grew up with my dad being into stereo systems and he bought me my first cd player and and receiver and speakers for my own bedroom before I, before i was 10 so like 89 i want to say oh man 89 90 <laughs> and uh i would buy cds and i would rearrange my speakers around my room so that I could figure out where I could get the best bass response out of them. And this is me being nine years old, right? Like, <laughs> Dad had to buy me 20-foot worth of cable for my speakers so that I could place them in my room to where I could get them as close to sounding like my uncle's trunk as possible. <laughs> and where they where they ended up was actually, I shit you not, Ben, this desk that we're sitting in front of right now in my studio was the desk that I had in my, li in my bedroom when I was 10. And I... <laughs> I used to put the, there were two eight inch realistic speakers from Radio Shack and I would put them down here like this, down beneath or this cubby where you slide your chair under and I would lay down here oh. and listen to rap music because the bass would just be pounding and it almost creates like this little sub box type deal. Oh my God. And that hilarious. vibrational bass was what drove me nuts, man. And it's like, I mean, that was it. That was what got me was uh, like synth bass. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And. I wanted a pair of turntables when I was a kid. I used to watch Yo MTV Raps, and Ed Lover was, was their DJ. Ed Lover and Dr. Dre, and Ed Lover was the DJ. Or no, I think Dr. Dre was the DJ. But I wanted a pair of turntables, and my dad took me to a pawn shop when I was about 10 to look for a pair, and 1200s were three, 400 bucks. I mean, the price hasn't changed much. It was oh, about wow. 800 bucks for a pair of turntables. Oh, my you know? God. My dad's like, you're fucking not ever going to get some turntables, right? So I kind of gave up on music, and I used to race bikes. I was into BMX. And when I started uh, riding bikes, I got more into alternative music and like, you know, like Nirvana. That was like when the grunge shit was coming about. Mm -hmm. But I still liked my hip hop. You know, I was big on Outkast and, and whatnot. Um, started riding bikes, um, you know, but throughout that, while I was in Tucson, a lot of my friends, big brothers were all graffiti guys and uh, they used to all paint on walls and 
you know, they all had pumas and fat laces and big baggy pants and shit. And all these taggers would go to raves at night on the weekends. All my, my friends, big brothers, and they all listen to mixtapes, you know, techno mixtapes. And I was so blown away by techno music. It was just like so fucking spacey to me. It was like music from outer space, you know, and mm-hmm. I thought it was really cool. And I would try to go to these raves that I saw flyers for, but we lived in Tucson and it was kind of a violent atmosphere. You know, before I had hit eighth grade, I had had three friends that had been shot and killed. Jesus. My brother had had five or six my by the time. God, man. By the time he graduated high school, and we had metal detectors in my middle school, you know. Holy shit! I mean, it was rough, rough part of Tucson, and uh, my parents would basically not let me and my brother leave the fucking yard. You know what I mean? <laughs> they were super protective, and you know they saved our lives. I mean, we could have got into some shit because, I mean, like I said, I had friends that were being yeah. killed. I mean, the year that I moved to Tucson or to Iowa from Tucson, Arizona. Uh, th- this girl, Crystal, that I had dated in high school, she was like my first love, right? The girl I lost my virginity to. Her little sister, Becky, bless her heart. Uh, when I had moved here in 96, uh, Becky, a few months after I moved, was murdered in their front yard. Oh, my God. She was shot um, with a with a 357 Magnum. And uh, that's that's why we moved here, was to get away from that shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's fucking nuts, man. And, um, you know, I... I couldn't do anything in Arizona. I wanted to go to these raves so bad, and, like, all the taggers that I knew were all rave guys, and I used to call info lines to hear the little track that would play before they give you the directions to the party just so I could hear some techno, and I just couldn't do it. Well, i come to Iowa in 96, and, you know, once we move here, it's like fucking Mayberry. <laughs> Nobody's carrying guns to middle school in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. You know yeah. what I mean? What part of Cedar Rapids? Uh, to, I, was in, I went to Wash, so oh, on the okay. southeast side. Once we moved here, man... My mom was like, I went from not being able to leave the yard to check in every two weeks, you know? <laughs> so this is actually where I got into my trouble. The first time I smoked weed was here. The first time I got high or drunk, all, you know, all yeah, that shit yeah. was here in Iowa <laughs> because in Arizona, I couldn't even leave the house, you know? Um, but anyway, so all that stuff went out the window. I started going to wash. I find a flyer for this party. It says Code Red. It has DJs on it. I'm like, is this a rave? <laughs> And dude that gave it to me was Patrick McSwiggin. Says, yeah, buddy, you should come to the show. And I asked my mom, and she's like, sure. You're in Iowa. You know, it's fine here. You're just, whatever. Come home when the sun comes up. What whatever. year is this? This was in 97. 97, okay. And it was Coleman's party. And this was before I met Coleman. And I went out to Code Red. And, um, you know, I guess I kind of should rewind here. When I was racing bikes in Tucson, right before we moved, I had wrecked my bike. And I lacerated a kidney. Um. My kidney was like in four pieces and I almost died and oh my, God. my mom wanted me to give up biking and I had wanted to play music because this was back when I was kind of in the alternative phase. And she said, if you sell your bike, I will buy you a bass guitar. So I sold my bike and I missed like six months of school. Um, and I sat in my bedroom and I learned how to play that bass. I played the bass for like 10 hours a day. <laughs> and so after that, you know, I picked up the guitar, you know, uh, over the course of the next two years, I had owned four guitars and I was in a band and I was all about I mean I had finally figured out how I can get myself involved in making music you know mm-hmm. and I've always loved music since a young age but anyway so fast forward moved to Iowa um, I bring all my guitars I'm at Wash I'm trying to meet kids that are you know I'm asking around who plays guitar who's in a band where's a fucking drummer let's do something right and I couldn't get my foot in the door with anybody because I was like the new kid from Arizona and frankly a lot of the kids just didn't like me um but then I went to this techno party, and uh, 
it fucking blew my mind, dude. Coleman played uh, first. I remember we get there. It was supposed to start at 9. We get to this uh, armory out by the airport. Space is empty. And, I mean, the sound system wasn't even there yet. There's like 100 ravers in this party that had paid cover. The sound system's not even set up. <laughs> Coleman had booked a sound system, Badger Audio, from Wisconsin that had troubles with the van or something, and they weren't there yet. They finally show up with this big rider truck full of speakers. There's like a hundred ravers there. We set up this wall of sound in like eight minutes flat. <laughs> We're all wheeling shit in. We pile it all up, and they plug it all in and set up the decks, and they shut off the lights, and Coleman opens up with this CFC-12 record, which I actually have over here, this piece on vinyl, this old techno warehouse banger. And the first track he dropped, I mean, the fucking place just fucking exploded. And I was like, this is so sick and it was like <laughs> something about the whole renegade aspect of it definitely had something to do with it the fact that it was so underground and so like god it just i mean it wasn't yeah. like you bought a ticket to go down to the you know the the cellular center downtown to watch a show it was yeah, like this yeah. renegade underground nobody knows what we're doing out here kind of a vibe and and the music of course was absolutely bonkers and what really turned me on about it was that Coleman was running the shit all by himself. It was him behind a mixer, and that was it. And I was used to, all right, I play bass. I need a guitarist. I need a vocalist. I need a drummer. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to look for people to help me express myself. And I realized that when you're DJing, you can do all that shit on your own, and you don't need help from anyone else. And I'm a very mm -hmm. independent person. You know, It's like when I throw shows, even when I team up with people, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that's like, all right, I got graphic design covered. I booked the sound. I got the venue done. It's we like a system. Yeah, right. And people are like, "Well, we're doing this show together. Like, wh wh what are we supposed to do?" You know. And I, I kind of, you know, bulldoze my way through it. But I'm just, I'm just that kind of person. It's like mm -hmm. I'm kind of a my way or no way type of person. And once I had saw Coleman step up to the decks and take over his own party and rock that shit, I was like, "This is for me, man." And within a month, I had sold all my guitars and ordered up a pair of turntables and a mixer, and the rest is history. <laughs> it was techno from there on out. That is awesome, man. So that's, yeah, that's how, that yeah, that's pretty much why you wanted to start pursuing it, how you got your first setup, you, you had all this money invested in these guitars and whatnot, yep. and you just sold them all in a month. Yep. Oh, my God. It was <laughs> nuts. And, you know, these are the guitars that I had saved up all this money and worked my ass off. You know, my dad was a tile contractor, and I worked with him over the, my summers, you know, since I was like eight. You know, I started... Mm -hmm washing fucking buckets and scrubbing floors when I was an eight-year-old. And by the time I was 17, my dad had me setting tile and grouting floors. And, you know, I was making 15 bucks an hour tax-free in the summer, working 10, 12-hour days. Yeah. So I was balling. I was making hella money over the summers, you know. And so I had money to buy rock-solid equipment, you know. So I had awesome guitars. I had an amazing guitar affection, uh, collection and effects pedals and amps and all that shit. And I just sold it all, man. I found people to buy it all, and within two months, I had a full PA system. Actually, these speakers that you're looking at here, still have them. This amp, a pair of Gemini turntables, and a Gemini mixer. <laughs> and that was that, man. I went at it and started collecting vinyl. It's crazy. And yeah, that's just a reminder. What year was that? That was in 96. 96. Yep. Okay. So coming up on uh, 20 years. Fuck yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like when you started? Once you had the equipment, were you like... Was it, how long did it take till you felt like Well, you it was rough, man. It probably took me a good three to six months to actually learn how to match beats properly, mm -hmm. you know? 
thankfully I had some guys that kind of took me under their wing. Kevin Bassett um, was a guy I went to high school with who was an awesome house DJ, and he was like, yeah, come over to my house, man. Come over and play on my decks, you know, let's let's do this. And everybody was all about getting together in each other's basements and just beating house records, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. on crappy home stereo systems with blown speakers and, um, you know, keg parties, house parties. That was what was cool about Washington High School was that, you know, whether you were a jock or a rich kid or you were from the ghetto, you were black, white, whatever, everybody was down to go to the house party where the keg was at that weekend and listen to house and techno. And that was what was kind of special about our high school, you know what I mean? We had kids coming from the private school, Regis, which is now Xavier, Linmar, Kennedy, Jeff. All those kids knew that the wash kids, whether you were, again, the thug, the dude wearing nice Nikes, or the Hessian kid with fucking a chain wallet, they knew that if you go to a wash party, all of those people are going to be there, and they're all going to be listening to House and Techno. It was pretty fucking awesome. You know what I mean? So it was, it was cool yeah, to be a man. part of that movement. Absolutely. <laughs> So, how did you start to get involved in the scene? Or So, that show, obviously, Coleman kind of broke me. Um, did you meet him there? No, not there. Um, funny story about me and Coleman. So, Coleman didn't like me off the bat because uh, his best friend, Nate Corderer, I don't know if you know Nate or not, but oh, Nate much. was in my homeroom. Nate and Noah Conzen were in my homeroom. And uh, I had met Nate, and he could tell that I wasn't from around here, and he had he's a super nice guy. He... He actually married my wife and I. He was the, the ordained minister that married Natalie and I here a few years ago. But um, he had, you know, started asking questions. We had a few classes together. He thought I was cool. We kind of hit it off, blah, blah, blah. So a few months later, you know, Nate actually asked me, you want to go to this techno party in Chicago? Or there was a lineup. It was Enter the Darkness. It had, like, Kari Lekabouche and Adam Bayer and some huge techno party. And uh, I ended up getting in the car with Nate. Coleman and Ben Brockman who lives in Denver now I don't know if you know Ben but and going to this party in Chicago but before that Nate had helped finance a party for Coleman it was called Mentally Divergent where he had Damon Wilde Woody McBride Reed Truth and somebody else and it was in a, a YMCA basketball court and the flyer had said out of state IDs get a discount at the door <laughs> now I had just moved here from Arizona so I had my Arizona driver's license and me being the punk kid with no respect that I was, I was like, shit, I don't have to pay 20 bucks. I'll only pay 10 to get into this because I have an Arizona ID, right? <laughs> and Nate Quarter is like, yeah, dude, you should totally try. And so I get to the door, and Elmo, Noah's dad, is mm -hmm. running the door. And uh, I'm like, I got an Arizona ID, man. I get in for half price. It says on the flyer, you know, out-of-state IDs, half price. Well, really what Coleman meant when he put that on there was, if you're driving to our party from Chicago, you can get in for a little bit cheaper if you show your Chicago ID. Not assholes that live here with an out-of-state ID, right? <laughs> so I break out my ID, and it's just as Coleman's walking up. You know, he happened to be walking by the entrance, and Raylene is up on this balcony. Raylene's his sister, or stepsister. Yeah, and uh, Elmo's like, stops Coleman. He's like, hey, you got something on your flyer about, you know, discounts for out-of-state IDs? And he's like, yeah. And then I hear Raylene go, that's Matt Risty. He's in my chemistry class. <laughs> and Coleman goes, Fuck that. Full price. <laughs> and he walks in, and I'm like, oh, I'm such an asshole. And I was like, but Nate told me to try, and Nate's Coleman's best friend. It's so funny, dude. I was just like such a prick. So from there on out, it was like, you know, the couple times I had seen Coleman, I was that dickhead that moved here from Arizona that tried to scam him for 10 bucks. <laughs> I mean, fast forward to now, he's like my right-hand man. You know, he's my brother. But that's how mm -hmm. we met. And then 
Nate invited me to that party. We went to Chicago and had a good night, and you know we've been boys ever since. But that's how I kind of met all that them circle of dudes. Pretty funny. Uh, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> fucking funny, man. <laughs> Uh, what was the scene like when you first got into it? I know Coleman was doing a lot of shows, but was was there other other people doing shows, or what was the vibe? How many people were coming out to shows, and Man, what, what kind of music other, was hot? There was a lot of people into it. There's a lot of promoters, but in my opinion, like Coleman was the only one that was doing it on a scale that was like, you know, worthy. I don't know. Not to play any disrespect towards any of the other promoters, but. Coleman was bringing full sound systems. I mean, we were juniors in high school, and he had brought, I mean, for Analogistic Warriors, for example, he brought the whole Sonic Groove Tour, which is Frankie Bones, Adam X, Heather Hart, Carlos Terra, and he had Kooky Scientist do a live PA. So five headliners. <laughs> in high is, school. Right, and he's a junior, he's a junior in high school. And he brought <laughs> a sound system down from Minneapolis, the Southern Thunder Sound System or whatever. So Arena Warehouse, Wall of Sound, Five fucking plane tickets, headliners, mm. you know. And dude's not even graduated from high school. We were 17, yeah. you know. And yeah. to me, that's fucking nuts. Yeah. You know, you're throwing like a $15,000 budget show as a junior in yeah. high school. It's mind-blowing. But there's other promoters doing stuff. Um, the rotation guys in Iowa City were doing good stuff. They were bringing headliners every Sunday to Iowa City. I mean, international guys. Now, granted, back then it was a lot cheaper to bring those guys than it is now, but um, there was a lot going on. I don't know. House music was big for the Iowa City scene, like DJ Alert and Jeff Rowe and Uplift. All those dudes were like playing ghetto and house tracks and Chicago. The whole Chicago house movement was very prevalent then. But Coleman was bringing the techno, man. And I mean, not to be on Coleman's nuts, but that was just my alley. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And, and he was doing the rock solid shows, and those were the shows that we would all get super excited about. Yeah. yeah. And he was doing them frequently, too. You know, mm -hmm. a few a year. And he'd lose his ass on everyone, you know, lose money on everyone just because his budgets were too extreme. But he was bringing the turnouts, the sound systems, and the headliners. Yep. And that was the shit that shaped a lot of us. Addicted into, to that vibe. Like, yeah, even, man. Even though you're losing money, it's like... <laughs> it's crazy. And, it, you know, it, it totally, like, kind of laid the foundation for, at least me, I mean, I should only be speaking for myself, but if it wasn't for, you know, that three to five year span of where he was busting his ass making shit happen, I I would not still be trucking today. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That yeah. kind of that kind of developed me into the person that I am now. Yeah. You know, going through that. Yeah. And not not to get too much into it because I definitely want to uh, somewhere along the road get him on this podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but a big part of it is that his his mom used to throw shows. Yeah. So as far as I know, and I could be wrong on this, but I think that Coleman's mom threw one of the first raves in Iowa. And I want to say it was like 93, 94. Now, that was before I moved here. Mm -hmm. But I remember Coleman telling me a story about it. And he's like, yeah, I was in, you know, sixth grade or eighth grade or something. His mom, I guess, went to Chicago and went to a party and was like, mm -hmm. this is awesome. I want to do this at home. Yeah. And then he was like, you know, when you're in eighth grade, you don't want to go to your mom's party. Yeah. So he's like, mom, what the fuck? And or or, like, or would you want anything to do with that music? Exactly. He, he hated the shit at the beginning. Yeah. Like, the what the fuck is it? I'm not going to my mom's party. <laughs> you know, this is wet. I hate that shit. But that's kind of where <laughs> Matt Fountain comes into play, I want to say. Now, Coleman or Fountain would be better off to tell you the details of this, but I think that somehow Sun, you know, knew that Matt was doing parties. I mean, because there were parties going on in Iowa in, like, the early 90s. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to say at Hawkeye Downs, they brought the Wall of Bass and Woody and DJ Apollo from Minneapolis, who, I don't know if you know who Apollo is, but 
You know, know that name. You know that big track that Coleman and well shit Frankie Bones used to play that I'm a badass motherfucker. <laughs> real heavy. <laughs> yeah. That's a DJ Apollo track. But anyway, so they had brought Apollo and Woody and I want to say like E tones or something like that. And the wall of bass. And they did outdoors at Hawkeye Downs in like ninety three or ninety four. Mm-hmm. And that's just mind blowing me to me to think about that. Like twenty one years ago, you know. Yeah. They brought a full wall of sound and I wanna say they had hundreds of people, you know, but like I said, Coleman or Matt would be better to tell you those stories because that was mm-hmm. kind of before I was here. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot. Of, so yeah, all this is going on, and you met Coleman and whatnot. So when did I mean this would I mean that was two thousand six, but when did Solar Cathedral or or what what gave birth to that? Or? So I had let's see the first show that I played like a a flyered build event. You know, I kind of you know cut my teeth playing keg parties and house parties with those dudes, but. Um, I had gotten booked to play this party called Hullabaloo, and it was actually at the Opera House. Oh, really? Yeah, this was in 99, <laughs> um, with Twans and Marat from Detroit, and Angel Alanis played, and they had a big sound system they brought from Chicago. So that was the first show I played, and I was just hooked. I was like, this is amazing, you know, and I didn't want to be trying to hit up promoters to say, hey, put me on. I was just like, you know what? I'm, I mean, again, I took inspiration from, from Coleman. It was like, do what you want to do be in charge of everything and play the slot you want, you know? So I was like, screw it. I'm just going to throw my own party. So I threw a party called Conflicting Elements, and it was my first event. I don't what know. What year? You might have said it. I this was in 2000, 99 or 2000, 99 or 2000. somewhere around there. Okay. And uh, I didn't, Solar Cathedral was just, I don't know, you know, techno's kind of spacey. I, I kind of think that's where the solar came thro- from, and, like, Cathedral is like a place where people had, you know, would worship, so it's kind of this whole worship the music type thing. I don't know necessarily, Mm -hmm. you know, how that kind of came to fruition, but I thought Solar Cathedral was kind of catchy and it just stuck, but, so I came up with Solar Cathedral, I threw this party called Conflicting Elements, and uh, we threw it at Coe College, actually. I somehow got the director of the sports department in Coe College to lease me the cafeteria at (laughs) Coe, and we did an all-night party there. Um, I think I had Coleman play. Is there food? No, no. (laughs) Jeff Pillar, this old guy, the technician, is a really good house DJ from around here. He lives down in Atlanta now. Um, So, yeah, so that was my first party. Really, I just wanted to – I want to beat big, fat sound systems, and I don't want anybody else to have to give me that opportunity. And that's 90% of the reason that that Solar Cathedral Productions exists. I just want – I want the ability to play – on ridiculous thick sound systems and i don't expect anyone else to give me that opportunity mm-hmm. so i'm like fuck it i'll just do it i'll find a venue i'll get people to come out and i can play on this big fat sound system really what it boils down to is that nerd aspect of me mm-hmm. i just like to play funky music on big thick rigs <laughs> and nobody else i don't expect anyone to do all the work to get that done for me you know Absolutely. what i mean so i do it mm-hmm. that's really what it boils down to Fuck yeah, man. Uh, how how has Solar Cathedral evolved over the years? I'd say it's fucking kind of turned into... Uh, I mean, I finally figured out how to turn it into a business, you know? Watching yeah. Coleman lose money over all those years, I figured out, you know, where to keep my budgets. We've got a great following now. You know, we've got a, a ton of people that support our music, and I owe everything to them. So mm-hmm. shout out to all you Solar Cathedral supporters. Woo! Love you guys. 
Um, you know, if people didn't want to come out and, and party with us, then this would not exist, but they do, so it, it works, but kind of a symbiotic relationship. But um, it's just gotten more professional, I'd say. I mean, we've streamlined. We've got amazing sound systems around here at our fingertips, and we've mm-hmm. got venue owners. You know, aside from the challenges that we talked about earlier, I mean, bar owners love working with us because we pack the joint with people that are buying drinks all night. So getting bars to play in is easy. Um, getting turnouts is, is there now. So I'm just really kind of humbled by it. It's like if we put uh, put a flyer out there and tell people that we're going to set up a sound system, uh, chances are the, the space is going to fill up and we're going to have a good time. And and that's and that's been what's been driving me, you know, mm-hmm. for the last, I'd say, 10 years. Yeah. Um, you know, now with Pan Pot around the corner of this show, um, you know, that's kind of going to kind of speak wonders towards the the production level that that we've come to since the beginning, you know. Um, I've, I've not ever been about, you know, a bunch of flashy lights and lasers and things of that nature. Um, I just like big fat sound systems and really dark rooms, but the production level of the SC15 event is going to be like nothing I've ever been in charge of before. I'm really proud of that. Fuck yeah, man. It's going to be awesome. What shows have stuck out for you over the years? Were there ones that were just kind of like taking that next step, taking that next step or what, what, what one like meant the most to you or... Man, there's there's been so many. It's hard to say, you know, this one was, the, you know, the one. But Detroit's been a pretty played a pretty intricate role. Um, you know, we've been I've been going to the uh, the DEMF festival since I missed the first year, maybe the second year. Missed one one and two for sure. I want to say, and then I went. So you went when I, it was I've free. gone ever since then. Yeah, I, I did make it to the free festival. So maybe that was the second year. I definitely missed the first year of DMF, but then I went to the second year, and then I've I've gone ever since. The only year I've missed was last year because I was we were having our baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so Detroit's played a pretty crazy role in kind of you know building the foundation beneath you know how I think shows should be put on. Um, you know, being uh, at the, the Houghton did these control parties in Detroit after the festival. There were like these uh, DMF after parties called Control Series where Houghton just set up a four-corner sound system in a dark room and played for, you know, 10, 12 hours. And that shit just absolutely melted me, man. I mean, I'd say that was probably pretty instrumental in defining, you know, what I'm trying to achieve when I put on events. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not about these one-hour sets. It's like I personally would love to play four or five hours minimum every time I played live, you know, because technically I'm not even warm until an hour or two in, you know, and the mm. real magic starts to happen, like, well beyond that point. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? So... I think that Houghton and his control parties are, are probably the most inspirational for me. Those parties were, whew, can't even put into words <laughs> what was going on in that room Where'd in regards to magic. So uh, this building uh, is a Ramada Inn hotel upstairs. Benola, it is called uh, a space called the City Club in Detroit, which I want to say it's like a, like a gothic vampire type atmosphere <laughs> when they're not doing techno shows. Um, now, you know, it might've just been, it might've just been the party I was on that night, but Mm. (laughs) I remember seeing this dude in the bathroom there at control that I swore up and down was a vampire. (laughs) He scared scared the shit out of me while I was pissing. I was pissing next to this guy and I turned and he was really tall. He was like probably a foot taller than I am, which would make him, you know, almost seven foot tall. Now, again, there might've been some things that have played into that perception that I was having. (laughs) But he smiled at me. He goes, you know, he looks over at me and he goes, and he had a fucking, I saw this fang, you know. 
Like, that was a fucking vampire. It's like a vampire club. Have you been to the city club? I don't know. It's underneath the Ramada Inn Hotel. It's like the hotel's not open anymore, right? I want to say it is. Because I went to the the Tale of Us party this last year. It was in a hotel, and it was really weird. Like... Was it City Club? Was it there fucking was multi pitch levels. black in there? It was multi-levels. I mean, it was it was a weird fucking place. But it looked like yeah. it was not open anymore. It yeah. Was a, it was a shutdown But hotel. doesn't doesn't the entire city of Detroit look like oh, it's yeah. not open anymore? And I, yeah. And I, that's another <laughs> you know? thing that I just thought of was, ha, has the city, like, changed at all? Like Detroit? I mean, since you started, because you've been, how, like, what, Yeah, ten, I've been going a long years? time. There's been some pretty funny incidents where we pull off the highway to, like, piss or something, and we get to this gas station, and it's like the music stopped. When these, you know, a bunch of dorky white kids from Iowa pop out of the van, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, what are y'all doing here, you know? Um, we don't have public bathrooms. Are you crazy? Um, <laughs> Those are public shank rooms. Right. There's, I mean, there's some, some areas of Detroit. You know, when, when, after the festival, the festival ends at midnight. There's after parties going until, you know, the following day. But they're always in these crazy... You know, some of them are warehouse parties that are in these buildings that have been, maybe were burnt down 20 years ago, and mm. the basement's still intact, and that's where they're doing a party. Yeah. And we tell the cab driver, you know, the address, and he, like, double takes, like, what? <laughs> you want me to take you where? <laughs> and then we go to, like, the middle of the fucking projects. You're going to pay me? <laughs> and it's, like, 2 in the morning, and there's fucking, you know, kids on, you know, four or five-year-old kids running around on bikes and shit. And fucking there's like a thousand white people wrapped around this building, tucked in as tight as possible, like, oh my god, get me in there before we get shot type of shit. But Detroit, I'd say downtown has cleaned up a lot over the the decade that I've been going there. It used to be really scary, and now it's really not. I don't know. Nothing as bad has ever happened to any of us, though. It's like, Mm -hmm. you would think that something bad would have happened to the 50 people we know that go every year over the course of 10 years, but... Nothing really has, man. Maybe yeah. that maybe it's all hype. It's honestly the most magical weekend of the year. <laughs> it is, dude, and it's in such a grimy city. It's just crazy that that happens. But oh, I know. I mean, we. I have some friends there though that that tell me that you know it's only that weekend. Like yep. for the most part, outside of that weekend, it. they have some one-off parties here and there that are decent. But I think that um, it's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be now, in comparison to, of course, back when like you know Jeff Mills and. Saunderson and all those dudes when the when the movement was coming about that was probably mm-hmm. a pretty special time but that was way before my day yeah so. yeah well yeah yeah it's crazy how that weekend like that means so much to us like breathes so much life into that city like yeah and I've never been there not for that weekend so like you said it's right. hard to hard to make that judgment but it's fucking on when it's that weekend it That's sure is I'm sure man hundred <laughs> percent yeah, so back to uh, doing solar cathedral shows and whatnot. What what are some of the we've t- we've tapped into this a little bit, but what are some of the challenges you've faced trying to throw shows over the years, or like how how do you approach a venue? Like it's it's an absolute art. It is for the first time telling them, and I just would like to explore that a little bit. You know, over the course of the last few years, I've tried to get more and more honest about it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because the way I want to look at it now is again, you know, we've got we're a, a real business. We want an entertainment venue where we're going to have, you know, again, an insurance policy, security. I mean, this is, we want to put on a legitimate, safe event where people are listening to dance music, but we don't want to necessarily be done at two when the bars close. We're not serving alcohol nine times out of ten, so why should we be mandated by bar times? You know what I mean? It's kind of exactly. how I look at it. But 
Once a venue owner hears the word rave or thinks rave, of course, we don't say that. We're going to throw a rave in your venue. I mean, that word just makes me want to barf. I even hate uh, saying yeah. it. You know what I, I mean? But, but that's what they think. You know what I mean? When you tell them techno party and go all night, I mean, they immediately are thinking rave. And then, of course, they're immediately thinking drugs, drugs, drugs. And, God, it just fucking makes it really tough, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way we've gotten venues is by, you know, if they're going to give you the keys... Less is more. I mean, we don't necessarily tell them what's going to be going on in there. Um, you know, we're doing an art and music installation, a media installation. We're going to have art and visuals and music and live music. And we usually always say bands, even though we don't necessarily have bands. Bands and DJs, you know, we just try to say we're doing a music thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we try to, to really highlight the fact that we're not doing alcohol. We just want to provide an alcohol-free alternative for the youth of Cedar Rapids. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a, a bonus in people's eyes. Oh, these guys want to do something where there's not going to be a bunch of drunks. You know what I mean? That kind of plays into our argument. But mm-hmm. there's definitely an art to convincing a venue owner to let you set up a huge sound system and have 500 to 1,000 people partying until the sun comes up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, how can you do it? You know, every once in a while, you, you'll come across an owner that's cool and is like, oh, this is awesome. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. But nine times out of ten... You kind of have to smoke screen to get it done. And, you know, that's that's almost been enough to inspire, or inspire me to try to find my own venue. You know, over the course of the last year, I've been looking into business loans and trying to find empty warehouse spaces and just buy my own warehouse. Mm-hmm. Because if I can throw a party in a warehouse every two months, it would generate enough revenue to pay the bills and have my own space where I have the keys and I don't have to answer to anybody or lie to anybody. You know what I mean? I really would like to do that, but... The thing that sucks about venues is people get burnt out by them. So it's like if you throw six parties a year in a venue, you can probably only do that a year or two before people aren't excited about it anymore. Yep. So it's like buying a venue would probably be a bad investment around mm-hmm. here. So we just try to grab onto as many venues as we can and throw three, four, five, six parties in them until until they you know kind of catch wind of what's really going on in their space and they cut us off and we move on to the next space. Yeah. The half-life of the rave venue in Iowa. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such a challenge, man. It's and it such sucks. a reality. It's crazy. And there's so many awesome <laughs> venues, especially post-flood, because in 2008, Cedar Rapids flooded downtown, mm-hmm. and it destroyed, I mean, miles and miles and miles of amazing downtown buildings. And there's still buildings down there that haven't been rehabbed or whatever. Um, so there's all this space. I mean, there's all these historic brick huge beautiful warehouse type buildings downtown that aren't near anything residential so from a a residence perspective you don't get noise complaints because half of half of our challenges are somebody can hear this and they're calling the cops because it's driving them nuts Mm -hmm. if we're anywhere near apartments or houses you're not going to go all night you're going to get noise complaints so we try to find spaces that are zoned industrial or whatever and uh, right now, there's so many beautiful spaces downtown that are just sitting empty. Mm-hmm. And somebody's paying a mortgage on those spaces. Yeah. So if you could get a hold of these owners and say, hey, I'll give you a 1000 bucks. Let me lease this space for a week to do an art show or whatever. Yeah. You can get your foot in the door, you know what I mean? But it's just a matter of getting it done. Mm-hmm. And once they Google my name... You know, I have that trouble too. It's like you Google Matt Rissy, and it kind of—I mean—it's pretty obvious what I do. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I have to try to get venues, you know, through my buddies, work with friends, maybe to try to get get our hands on spaces. Yeah, exactly. 
So what's the future with Solar Cathedral? Uh, what constants will remain? Short-term goals, long-term goals? I don't know, man. I'm just trying to stay the course. It's like we're still getting people to come out. You know, I'm getting a lot older. DJing's a, a young man's sport, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like right now I'm, I'm kind of in the prime. You know, I'm kind of a big fish in a small pond. You know, I'm not really doing much outside of Iowa by any means. But we're still filling venues, and people are excited about coming out. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to keep capitalizing on it while I can. Yeah. I don't really have any particular plans. It's like, you know, I, I've had plans to make the SC15 a big year. You know, I want to make sure all my lineups this year are really big, and I want to spend some money on some headliners as opposed to just doing local lineups and, you know, doing shows that are a little bit more special and out of the norm. Mm -hmm. Once this year's behind me, I don't really know. I don't see myself slowing down anytime soon, if that's mm -hmm. what you're asking, you know. <laughs> I didn't think I would still be blazing this this heavy as uh, at this age, you know, looking back to when I was 25, 26. You know, I was never in this to try to make it big or get famous, and that's one thing that um, I think has kept me trucking for this long. Mm -hmm. Because I think that your vision kind of gets cloudy when, when when you know that's your your the end result that you're shooting for. Oh, get big, get famous, you know, go on tour, mm -hmm. be a big jock. Of course, that life would be cool. It would be awesome to do that. But now with a daughter at home, I don't even know if I'd be interested in it. You know, mm -hmm. being away from my family and whatnot, I don't think I could handle that. You know, I've got I've got a few friends that over the course of the last few years have been sort of skyrocketed into an international spotlight, like Zach being one of them. DVS1 is, I mean, he's, he, you know, we knew him back when, and now he's like one of the top DJs on the planet. And yeah. So watching, that's... you know, what he has to go through in regards to travel and being away from his wife and things of that nature, I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't know how you do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't think I could do that. I really mm -hmm. don't. And so being the big fish in the small pond in Iowa right now is a perfect fit. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to break this stride um, anytime soon. I mean, I don't see it breaking anytime soon. Yeah. I, and dude, another way to look at it is if, if you stopped, the impact that that would have on this fucking scene. I mean, and what, I do think what, about what that would sometimes. You do like, too? what would I be mean, going on here? You know, like, like, what would you do with your work time? Yeah, <laughs> on the clock. <laughs> it's kind of cool to be like the core of the music scene around here. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And again, I mean, I'm kind of just capitalizing on it. But yeah, I don't know, man. It's wild yeah. to think about that. You yeah, know? I mean, like, and especially with Coleman not being here, he carried the torch for so long, and it's yeah. like. Yeah, I kind of feel like I have this responsibility. Yeah, I don't to keep you, the man. boat afloat. You and know? not being here, dude, I I, I see it for sure. So. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's like what we have here is so special, man. And it's like uh, you know, living here is awesome. I always hear people talking about, man, I want to move. You know, I want to move to California. I want to move to Denver. And of course, it'd be nice to move somewhere warm, right? It's brutal here in the winter. But as far as like living here, I mean, my dollar goes a long way. The cost of living here is ridiculous cheap in mm -hmm. comparison to virtually anywhere. Absolutely. And, you know, I have a decent day job. It's like my wife and I live in a nice nice home. We have an awesome place for, to raise our daughter. And that's one of the main reasons we want to stick around. My wife's parents are here. My parents are here. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, again, it's like we make our own fun here. People complain about, oh, there's not shit to do here. Well, you know, the people that are involved in music here – when they leave and move to places like Denver or New York or Detroit or even overseas, when they come back here a year or two later to a party, they're like, God, I miss this. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I moved to this metro where I thought shit was going to be amazing and there's headliners playing here every weekend, but the energy is just not the same. And I mm -hmm. feel like, you know, people that are around here are very humbled by, by the opportunity that we do have to experience music and they really like take it for what it's worth oh, when yeah. it actually happens. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? 
And so there's a very a very true vibe about the dance floor here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And people notice it. Like oh, when yeah. we bring guests here, you know, Coleman's brought out, you know, Chris Lee being, I helped him bring Chris here the first time. And, you know, Derek Carter we had out here and, and Houghton played Iowa, you know, back in, back during his DE9 tour or whatever. I mean, there's been huge rock star DJs that we brought here. And without fail, man, in the morning when we're taking these guys back to their hotels or we're taking them back to, you know, to the airport to leave to go play another huge city, they're like, man, I got to give it to you kids, you know? Like, I didn't think that my gig in Iowa was going to be that cool, but I want to come back. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's fucking really humbling. Yeah. You know, when these dudes leave that have been playing, you know, some of the best venues in the world, and they're like, wow, Iowa yeah. was awesome. You know, granted, there was only 400 people here or 500 people, but the energy in that room was yeah. like, you know, I didn't want to stop, you know? And yeah. That's cool, man. You don't you don't yeah. really get that everywhere. I've, I've even seen it too. Like they'll they'll be you know an out of out of towner. I mean, they may not be the biggest name in the industry or whatever, but they're like, I wish I could push my ticket back a day because I'd just like to hang out with these people. Like yeah, <laughs> being totally. At the after party and just like just just. The I want to say is. Mike Huckabee, the second time he had come back to Iowa, Coleman brought him the first time, but then Dave Herbert and them dudes. I want to say had a hand in bringing him to Iowa City. And he booked a, a, his trip for three, four days so that he could come before and go fishing, stay and play, and then stay fishing another couple days or whatever. It's like, oh, we're bringing out Mike Huckabee to rock this party, but he wants to stay a few days and go fishing with us. <laughs> oh, my God. That's <laughs> pretty awesome. awesome. <laughs> they just had a similar thing with that in, uh, in Denver, uh, and we talked about this on the Seth Nichols podcast. Uh, they brought the Wiganami brother, or one of the oh, Wiganami. Wynomi or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wynomi okay. brother, not Wiganami. Yeah, yeah, Win- no, no, I know what you're talking about. Robag from them. Yeah. Uh, he'd played here, like, once before a couple he's years. He's the bearded but, guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. The last time he was here, he wanted to stay longer, because he's just, the mountains just blew his mind. So this time around, they booked him. He stayed for an entire week. Wow. And uh, <laughs> he his, he went up fishing with some local boys in Denver. Like He went ice fishing wow. up in the mountains, and... Uh, <laughs> My buddy Seth owns a uh, online uh, record store called okay. uh, Love Vinyl Records. So he has like twenty thousand records in his basement, and Robag was just wow. hanging out and Dang like <laughs> like bought a whole bunch of fucking records from him and just spent an entire week. So cool, yeah, man. just a similar kind of thing. That's awesome. All right, man. Well, we're getting close to the end here. Uh, we come to uh, this uh, repeating section I, I like to bust out near the end. Uh, it's called the best and worst experiences uh, in, <laughs> in, your, uh, in your line of uh, life. Uh, we'll start out with uh, what, what's the best and, or, and worst uh, set you've ever played? And <laughs> you get, yeah, it can be one front, because I mean, there can be multiple, but yeah. I mean, I've played pick, some pretty bad choose, sets. But. <laughs> Um, you know, I'd say one time was, uh, it's really unfortunate and I hate to, I hope that someone from St. Louis doesn't hear this, but I played St. Louis. Um, I got booked to play a really awesome show. This is a crazy lineup where they had, what's the other, like an infected mushroom and Donald Glaude and it was in this Roy Orpheum theater. Oh, I, I went to the party called. that year, Winter Warp Drive. It was Winter Warp I Drive. I went to the year before that. Okay. And it was an amazing party. Yeah. So I played crazy. the year after you went. And they had probably sold like 3,000 tickets. Beautiful, you know, classic venue, this big, huge... Huge balcony. Like yeah, opera house yeah. type theater or whatever. And uh, there's this gigantic turbo sound system and amazing visuals. And, you know, everyone in St. Louis is like, this is the party every year, you know. And the promoter, Panoptic, had uh, reached out. I want to say it was called Panoptic. 
Yeah, yeah it was Ben Affleck. Um, they had asked me to play, and of course I'm blown away. I'm like, this is awesome. You know, I'm thinking I'll play second or third stage because there's multiple stages in there. And they're like, we want you to close out the main stage after, you know, whoever. I guess they had some some dude from the UK playing before me, but some some dude from I can't remember what his name is. But anyways, he he ended up playing in Minneapolis. I want to say the night before, the night after for Woody. But um, anyways, it was like you know, so everyone's excited about Infected Mushroom, and of course that shit's not really my bag, but I know they're kind of a big deal. And you know, I was a little nervous about the gig, whatever. Coleman ponies up comes with. I think Noah came along and uh, Dustin Oxford, and and we load up the car, and you know they're taking care of me. They put me in an awesome hotel and buy me dinner and getting paid well you know i've i've played with donald glaude we've had him here a couple times so we link up with him Atkins. and yeah yeah and we're partying having a good time and you know huge venue and ravers everywhere and i don't know man it was there was something about i just didn't connect with the crowd that night i mean i step up to the decks to play last so like four in the morning which is my favorite time to play because mm-hmm. i don't have to beat it out like i can play deep groovy you know i just could just get in the dark zone which is awesome Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It just didn't happen for me. It was like some nights it just doesn't work. I stepped up to the decks and took over, and I just lost the crowd, and I was just completely disconnected. It was like, and the stage, the booth was really far from the crowd. It was like up on the stage and up on a platform, and it was all the way against the back of the stage. So there was probably a good 60 feet from like me to the front row, and I was like hiding behind the booth. Was like this really tall booth with like an upper rail on it with all these CDJs. So like, I couldn't see the crowd. They couldn't see me. And I just couldn't connect. I couldn't feed off their energy. And, I mean, I, w- I looked down at my watch probably 30 times during the set. I only had an hour. And I was, like, begging for it to be over. You know what I mean? My phone, I got a text from Noah, who was in the crowd, you know, one of my best friends, that said, what's going on up there? <laughs> like, where the fuck are you, dude? Like, this isn't you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in the morning, I was just so fucking pissed. I was so upset with myself. I was just like, I just blew... You know, one of the hottest opportunities that I had. Now, looking back, it wasn't that big of a deal. Another show, another show. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. I I was kicking myself in the ass about how terrible I, I thought I played at that fucking party for mm-hmm. weeks to follow. Yeah. It just Man, sucked so bad. I, I remember, too, because I, I remember the fucking flyer for that party. And yeah. Like, that's what's <laughs> hilarious. It's like the coolest flyer booking you've ever had because you're, yeah. like, directly below Infected Mushroom. Yeah. Like, this right, monster lineup <laughs> and Matt Rissy, the Iowan, it's like one of the top five. Like. You know, and it's like I swear my mixes, like Coleman, you know, had told me like your mixes were all clean. Like, you know, I think I still mixed well, you know, decently or whatever, because I still had kids come up to me after. It was like, oh, that was awesome, you know. But I'm like, I'm my own worst critic, you know, and I'm just, I'm just like, whatever, you know. I appreciate that, but I think it was terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad I didn't record. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, so that was one of the worst, I'd say, for me. But mm-hmm. So and the best, what was the best? I don't know. Um, I think I wrote this down. So uh, a long time ago, I did get a chance to play Arizona. It was actually one of my first um, plane ticket gigs. I got flown back to Phoenix to play a party. And uh, the party was called Therapeutic Chemistry. And they had booked uh, Atomic Babies, which I don't know if you know who they are. They're oh, from yeah. Brooklyn. And Joey Beltram. And there was probably... 30 DJs on this lineup. There's like three or four stages. And I was booked to play the third or fourth stage very late. And Joey Beltram didn't make his flight. Oh, shit. Uh, so he didn't show up. And the promoter, I was actually in the hotel hanging out with the Atomic Babies in their room when the promoter showed up. 
uh, to tell the Atomic Babies that Joey Beltram wasn't going to make it. And uh, they were like, you should have Matt play his spot. Because I was in the room with them. We were all kicking it or whatever. And the promoter's like, fuck it. Cool. So I had gotten moved from the third stage at like 4 or 5 in the morning to play main stage at like 1 a.m. back-to-back with the Atomic Babies. And so it was like magic time, you know? So this was back when I was still playing records. And they had a huge wall of sound in there, probably a few thousand people. Um, Arizona, there's heat lightning storms where it doesn't rain, but there's just crazy amounts of lightning. And this party was at the Pima County Fairgrounds, kind of out in the middle of nowhere in this warehouse. And this warehouse had big, huge garage bay doors where they have loading docks for trucks. And they'd open them all up. And there was a lightning storm going on. Oh, my God. And Atomic Babies just fucking destroyed the place. And I got to step up after they had kind of ignited the dance floor and just take over to this this energy that had been pre-existing as a result of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've never had more fun playing in my life. It was, it, I mean, everything, you know, the, the stars were aligned, if you will. So mm-hmm. that was probably one of my favorite gigs of all time was playing that slot. Fuck yeah! I'm man. glad that Joey Belcher missed his flight. He'll <laughs> <laughs> be one of my favorite DJs forever. <laughs> Love that guy. <laughs> Inspired me so much. That's funny. All right, what uh, what have been the best and worst uh, musical experiences you've ever seen? Whether it's a band or a DJ or someone you were so excited to see and there was it was ultimately ultimately disappointing, let down. Or, yeah. Oh man. That's crazy. Thousands. I mean, to take it back to the best experience, and I'd mentioned this earlier, was uh, seeing Richie Houghton at the control party. It's the first time I had saw him play a really ex- extended set. I mean, he played for like 12, 14 hours, some shit like that, on a four-corner sound system at the Vampire Club. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was just mind-blowing, man. Uh, one of the best experiences I've ever had. Um, it seemed like he was in control of the lights, too, but that just might have been the experience. But um, <laughs> it was just so mind mind-bending. Um, to watch that. Uh, last year, uh, my buddy Noah and I went overseas and we went to Awakenings and watched uh, in Amsterdam and we watched uh, Adam Bayer and Joseph Capriati play an eight-hour set um, and that was pretty awesome. Um, we took a train the following day to Berlin and got into Bergen, um, you know, techno mecca of the mm. planet. And Bayer and Capriati happened to be doing an eight-hour set there the following night. So we saw Bayer and Capriati do eight-hour sets back-to-back two nights in a row, which is pretty fucking awesome. Um, you know, weirdest or worst? I don't really know. I mean, got not to bring Houghton up again, but there was a weird party in uh, Madison at some place. I want to say it was called, like, the fire, the fire Room or the Fire something, Firehouse something where Richie Houghton had played a party that we were all amped up to get to. And we got there and there was like 20 people there and that was that. And we ended up eating some bad drugs that night. Have you ever heard of this, uh, two CB or (laughs) maybe two CB or something like (laughs) we were young. We thought we had bought some ecstasy and it was not ecstasy that we had eaten. And that shit put us on some weird planet and, Richie Houghton's playing in this weird room. It was like this, the DJ booth was like in the corner and it was behind glass. It was like a recording room, but he was back in there playing for this little bar and there was only like 20 of us there and we were all on some fucking weird drugs and like, God, I just wanted, wanted it to be over. (laughs) We had, we had planned for this night for fucking fucking weeks and dude, I I couldn't fucking walk up and down stairs. It was ridiculous, man. But he played terrible and there's nobody there. I don't know. It was just. 
worst techno line of my life. I wish I had a better answer for you, but that's that's what comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdest maybe would be when we had drove to hot to Canada to see Houghton. So I was telling you about this earlier. So mm-hmm. Nate Quarter and I get in this Volvo and we drive 14 hours to this party uh, in Windsor. Maybe it was a 12 hour drive, Windsor, Canada, and. Somehow, Nate had gotten us on the guest list, and Houghton's mom was running the guest list at the door, which is crazy. I was like, she looks, this lady looks just like Richie Houghton, and come to find out it was his mother. Um, she lets us into this club, and this club's probably, you know, twice the size of my basement, maybe, and we, uh, you know, Clark Warner is playing ambient music on a pair of 15-inch PA speakers, um, so no sound system in this club. Uh, and I'm like, dude, I cannot fucking believe that we just drove 12 hours to this party to play in this, to hang out in this tiny room where Han's going to play on a pair of speakers and fuck it. Might as well get drunk. So we started ordering up drinks and we're an hour into drinking and I got to pee. So I go to the restroom and while I'm in the restroom, I hear this muffled bass. Like I hear, mm, 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 mm. and I'm like, there is a huge sound system within earshot of this room that we're in. And so we start perusing around this tiny club, and like in, back in this dark, unmarked corner, we find a doorway, and we walk through the doorway, and there's a staircase that goes down into the basement. It was a spiral staircase, and it was all draped with like black, either black tarp or black plastic. So it's pitch black. We go down this fucking rabbit hole, and we pop out in the bottom in this basement, and there's like a thousand people in this room, and Houghton's down there just fucking blaring this huge sound system. And I'm like, oh, my God, we found this room, you know? (laughs) Yeah, right? So, like, and we have an amazing night, of course. Dude blows us away, and it was awesome. But I just can't imagine that if we had never – what if I had never found that room? Like, we drove – how many people didn't? How many people didn't? You know, because there wasn't – it wasn't, like, go down here. I mean, you had to find it. And if I hadn't went to the bathroom and heard that muffled bass, I mean, we would have spent the whole night upstairs listening to ambient music after a 12-hour drive and then have another 12-hour drive home. (laughs) Oh my god, I would have been so mad at myself. It oh, was so crazy. fucking hilarious. <laughs> Alright, uh, best and worst festival you've ever been to? Um, Best festival is just always going to be Detroit. Every year it gets better Whoop. and better. Yeah. <laughs> Hands down, best festival, Detroit, do it. I've been to some, some festivals about town. I've been to Awakenings overseas, which is pretty cool, in Amsterdam. Um, not really a festival, but just a two-day party. They do it probably every two months. That shit was awesome. Um, but worst, hands down, which was also a worst, one of my worst gigs, was the Melon Mountain Music Festival. <laughs> Melancholy Music that, Festival. <laughs> there was, God, it was so bad. We, we drove, again, to Canada, so damn near Canada. It was like way up in northern Minnesota, right, right near the border of Canada. But we had taken a gig to play there, and Mustafa and I drove up, and it was just fucking nightmare city from from the get-go dude it was hot our car was a piece of shit we were well what'd they make it out to be i mean it was like this this rave pamphlet flyer that had like a million djs on it and a million logos and it was like supposed to be the ultimate fucking rave them carnival ride carnival party like a ski resort or something something right up on this mountain and you know fireworks and da 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 and camping and just supposed to be awesome and we drove what seemed like forever to get to this party, and, you know, we get there, and all these people were bitching that the cops had, like, all of the, the speed limit signs had black plastic bags over them on these roads, 
the cops had like put these speed limit sign or these bags over the signs and they were just busting people they were leaving oh the party so all these people had gotten arrested for leaving there drunk and speeding or whatever and all these people were leaving pissed and you know we get there and we end up having to pay to get in and it's like we're playing and we got to pay fuck. and you know set up your there was no kind of organization whatsoever you know we're, we're kind of left on our own here in regards to where do we go set up our tent what stage are we playing on who do we talk to what the fuck is going on and you know none of that shit was ever determined it was just a nightmare from the get-go all of the sound systems were crap i mean we, we were treated like fucking assholes by everybody we crossed paths with it was, <laughs> it was just a fucking nightmare um you know i fell asleep drunk on, on the grass and the sun came up and I woke up burnt to a fucking crisp <laughs> like lobster red we uh you know some guy tried to start a fight with Noah in the morning who was like tripping on acid and like losing his shit I almost got started on fire by this fucking stray firework that had caught me when they had this firework show or whatever there was like some some wonky firework that shot towards my tent and like almost caught my shirt on fire so i almost died so there's that fuck it was just fucking terrible dude melon mountain music festival just one nightmare city never again what year is that this actually wasn't that long ago yeah. I, I lived this is when i lived at 3410 so i don't know probably i mean i was with natalie my wife so within the last five six years yeah, i'd yeah. say i remember you coming back from that one and fucking telling us because i wanted to go because it looked Everyone wanted to it. It was just right? like that, that Midwest electronic music festival like outside of Chicago. Oh, I played that too. Yeah, you I, played that one. Hank Cookie Air you, you Fairgrounds. Or you didn't stay for that fucking madness. Like you came and went, I'm pretty sure. Like, Dude, I came and I played on a full wall of sound for like three people. <laughs> I played on a wall of sound that was like sixty foot long and there was like three people in front yeah. of it. But you know, one, one of them, them though, one, yeah, one you them. were one. Well, one of them was a promoter from St. Louis, though. So this is the only good that came from that. Is one of them was this promoter named Kevin Fernandez from St. Louis, and he liked what I was doing, and he booked me to play St. Louis. And if it wasn't for that one yeah, connection, I've so played St. Louis probably twenty times since then. That's so. It's funny. all as a result of that. That's so that so was goddamn the funny. One man. thing that came from that show. That's hilarious, <laughs> dude. They had nineteen stages. And it was at a fairground, so you were in like the cow and rabbit barns of the thing, and like, <laughs> like twelve and a half of them were running, and oh, they kept losing power. There was a tornado that came through and actually <laughs> lifted people up in their tents. Like they, it, the security guards at the party looked like people. They went down to the ghettoest ghetto of Chicago and threw a security guard fucking <laughs> and gave him a crack pipe and said, "Don't let anyone in here without that has drugs on them." Like. <laughs> That's funny. That place was a fucking nightmare of a party. Yeah, oh you know, that God. that one's right there with Melon Mountain. You gave Mel us your hotel Mountain. room, too. You're like, we're not staying. Yeah, you yeah. gave us our hotel room, and me and Steve-O were <laughs> staying in the hotel room middle of the night. Another DJ shows up with the... Or they had a key, and they're like... To the same room? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're funny. like, no, we're staying. They're like, God damn it. Like, Jesus Everybody Christ. got fucked on that party. That was hilarious. You know, I forgot I gave up that room, so at least they paid for my hotel room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It wow. took us like 45 minutes to get to the hotel, which is the other fucked up thing. Part of it was not finding it, but it was very far. It was not ridiculous. an easy jaunt from the venue, but... <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. All right, man. We'll, we'll go ahead and wrap this up here. I yeah, mean, even cool. Even though we can just keep fucking going. Man. I know. What are we, like an hour? Almost two hours in? <laughs> Jesus. You have to edit some of this shit uh, out of here. It'll be, it will be good. <laughs> 
All right, so if people want to find you or, you know, hear about your events, where can they find you online? Yeah, mattrissy.com, M-A-T-T-R-I-S-S-I. Fresh, fresh new, right? Yeah, yeah, just got a new site. It's looking good. Uh, so mattrissy.com, my last name is spelled R-I-S-S-I. And if you just Google my name, you can find my Instagram, my Twitter, my Facebook, all my event pages. Yep, yep, follow them on Facebook and Solar Cathedral is uh, on Facebook yep. as Solar well. Solar Cathedral Music Events is a group on Facebook. So Keep up to date with everything. Yep. Uh, any other, I know we've talked about them, but any other shows, dates you want to plug coming up? Um, not necessarily. We've got the Pan Pot Show coming up. We're doing um, all of the PSB events all year. going to be really fat. Um, and then, uh, of course, Halloween's really big. I'm going to try to do something huge this year since it's the SC15 year. Um, start a new series. So we, I Am a Monster was the big Halloween series. I kind of played a part with Coleman there. Um, the last two years we did Bloodlust, and uh, we've got a thousand people each year. Um, this year we're going to start uh, the Boo series. So uh, Halloween Boo on Halloween night, the thirty first. Fuck yeah, man! Uh, right on. Anything else you want to say or? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having quotes? me, man. Love you Fuck like a brother. Yeah. Good Absolutely, stuff. Absolutely, man. Look forward to hopefully getting in on that uh, camping festival in, in yes, July. Yes, yes, it's coming. So awesome. Keep your ears and eyes out for that as well, folks. Uh, Oh, uh, and uh, yeah, so the mix we're going to be listening to uh, right now is uh, the recording from Mission Beat two nights ago. Anything, yeah. any notable artist or what kind of vibe uh, you're No, feeling? no. Um, for the most part, aside from a couple uh, key tracks, um, uh, I played a bunch of new stuff, so really excited to, to hear the recording myself, actually. A um, bunch of new tunes in there. I don't know, I, I played before you and Eric, um, so I tried to play a little bit more uh, melodic. Um, you know, it's nice to play those earlier slots where I don't necessarily have to beat it out. So, um, some sexy tunes on there. I'm excited to hear it. Well, fuck yeah, man. Uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for being a part of Mission Beat. Thanks for being an inspiration. Thanks for holding down Iowa for all the years. I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, man. Cool. You're, you're a fucking machine, and I appreciate you. Yeah, brother. For sure, dude. Thank you. Well, here you are, guys. Here we go. Matt Rissy on the ones and twos, live from Mission Beat, number five.
take it out on me, on me. I won't let you leave my life. I won't let you take it out on me. I'll never hurt you. Only a dog and they try to.
podcast will already be my 10th episode Woo! probably gonna have a couple different guests on uh kind of like a bonus episode or something and uh provide the mix myself i don't know we'll see what happens uh but yeah have a good one guys and we'll see you next time